Welcome to Thriving Educators. I am Brian Lingley. In today's episode, I speak with high school ELA teacher Chandler Brown and high school social studies teacher Kim McKinnon about thoughtful discourse. The title of chapter six from Jerry Brophy's little booklet, Teaching. This is one of a multi-episode series digging into each chapter of Brophy's succinct summary of research supporting effective teaching. Enjoy. Chandler Brown, Kim McKinnon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Okay, so Chandler, um, as you read through this chapter six on thoughtful discourse, I am curious uh, what stood out to you in the chapter. Yeah, so I guess right in the beginning, and it talks about asking questions to stimulate students to process and reflect on content. And then it kind of goes on to say, recognize relationships and think critically and higher level thinking. And I think that those are all kind of buzzwords that we use in education. And to string them all in a sentence versus seeing what it looks like in a room is so different Mm -hmm. because it takes so long with certain classes to establish a relationship with kids where they feel comfortable doing that with you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess when I read that, I was thinking about, and I think any teacher would probably say it all starts with relationships with kids. Gotcha. Right? No one's going to answer a question or raise their hand or ask a question if they don't feel comfortable doing so. Gotcha. Yeah, right. And on top of the comfortability factor, it's also like cultivating curiosity. Like we can't just expect kids to come in and be like, oh my gosh, Lord of the Flies, let's go. Let's talk about that. Okay. And so building that relationship with kids where if I'm wrong, I'll tell the kids straight up. They've probably heard me say I have no clue multiple times because if they ask me a question, I'm like, I have no idea. So I think that's one way where you can build a relationship with them where they feel comfortable to be like, okay, we're going to figure this out together. So then you're kind of modeling the stages of discourse in itself. And as far as cultivating curiosity goes, English is a really special subject because you can kind of take anything that's going on in the world, anything that they've experienced, and then use that as your content to kind of teach those functional skills. Okay. And so, I mean, I'm also so lucky to be at Novi. Our kids are so thoughtful. We are lucky. Yeah. Of each other and of their own, I don't know, like sharing their own stories. So it's awesome just working here because I feel like the kids come to me with so many speaking and listening skills anyways. So it's, we start off at a really strong baseline before even having to work on really opening ourselves up to be wrong or to change our minds or to hear other people's points of view. Mm -hmm. So help me with your context. So obviously an English teacher, Mm -hmm. Uh, what is the official sub or official class title and, and what like level of student ninth grade, 10th grade, what are you, what are you teaching? So I teach this year, I'm teaching ELA 10. And then I also teach the CODE ELA 10. Mm-hmm. So that's a class that has all students who have IEPs. Mm-hmm. And it's a co-taught class, so I have a special education teacher in the room with me. Okay. And that class looks a lot different than um, our my other classes in terms of being able, especially if we're talking like direct instruction, all kids answering questions. Mm-hmm. And so with a class like that where some kids are, it's a much smaller group. So, you know, the focus is really on you when you answer a question. Everybody knows each other. And so that class takes a lot more trust, I think, Mm -hmm. especially for the kids who are super, super quiet all the time. So building that trust. And a lot of that is modeling, like the kids in that class. And with all my English classes, I guess, they'll really listen to how I respond to kids or how I prompt kids to 
kind of elaborate on their own thoughts and then they'll repeat those same practices, which is cool to see for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Kim. So I'm wondering as you think and look through this chapter on thoughtful discourse, uh, what stood out to you? I liked how it focused on what teachers really want students to get out of a class. And of course, that's learning. I think that what makes great teaching is being interesting and asking students the right questions. I want to approach each day with an interesting question that's both going to get student buy-in and is relative to what they're interested in real life, but also relate that back to what has happened in the past. And what's so cool about history is that, of course, it repeats itself, but it comes back in different ways. And then if we can get students to see what that looks like today, then they can get excited about how they fit into it. I think all of that comes down to good questions and great conversation. And so mm-hmm. when you can get the questions to, to grab student buy-in and you have a really awesome discussion, you kind of forget about, oh, I need to know the answer, and you get lost in the learning, and then you have a, a really great day. So let's put some context on this. Okay. What are you teaching these days? So we, we just got done teaching about imperialism, and we're moving into World War One. Okay, and that is as... Um, that idea and concept is part of what class? World history. Okay. So you're teaching a world history class that is taken by freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors? Mostly mostly juniors and seniors. Okay. And world history, world's pretty big. Yeah. So what is the time frame? Like when does that class begin? We start with world religions and then we... Interesting. So a theme kind of class. Okay. So religions first and then... And then we end with globalization and the modern economy. Okay. There were two things that just stood out to me in some of the, the ways that you explained the way that you reacted to this particular chapter. Um, one is the way that students sometimes approach the things that we give them to do in class, which is just to get it done. Right. And one thing that I try to tell the students is the point of this assignment is not to get it done. <laughs> you know, what, what is really the point? It's, right. not, it's not to get it done. And then the second thing that stood out to me was um, you talking about the importance of of questions and and you kind of tease that out of this as well. So how do you think about questions in your classroom or or how, you know, what, what, how do you decide what questions to ask? It really depends on the students in front of me. And I think Mm -hmm. that question varies hour by hour, your first hour, question or pacing or when you hit them with the biggest question of the day that might look different if you approach your six hour question so I think it's getting a good read of the room and knowing your student population and knowing what they want and what they need and how best to get buy-in okay is the greatest determining factors in how I approach questioning. Right. So I'm going to ask a question so that in this moment, 
that I think is going to help engage students in what we're studying. And it's going to be something that you, you use the word buy-in. Yeah. But that's like a student engagement piece, right? Right. Okay, so Chandler, how does thoughtful discourse then look in your classroom? What does it look like? I think that the most important part of discourse, most important part of communicating with people is the listening aspect. Okay. And so when I ask questions, like in my room it might look like I'm introducing an idea and I'll pose a question or two to the full group. And then after that, I'll give them like 10 minutes. My desks are all in table groups and I'll have them talk with each other before I pose the question again to the room Mm -hmm. so that, you know, the quieter kids or the kids who are tired and weren't paying attention perhaps have a moment to hear from their peers what they're thinking and they'll feel more confident answering questions. Mm -hmm. And I think um, one thing that I focus a lot with my kids on, especially when they're doing presentations or um, graded discussions, is the space after someone asks a question. You know, when you feel like you have to respond right away or you had something you wanted to say that you couldn't get in before, but taking the time to pause and hear the question that was asked and knowing that everyone in the room is respecting your time and your thoughtfulness and then responding when you feel like you're ready is something that I think thoughtful discourse looks like for sure. I really appreciate that point that you just made. Um, I've thought about it in terms of um, sometimes maybe we, when I've seen teachers do this or I've probably even done this, I know I've done this, mm-hmm. where you ask a question and you want an answer right away. Or, or how many times has it come up, especially early in my teaching, where it's like a true or false question or a yes or no question, or, and then you call on a kid and they say the exact wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it was because you didn't give time for thoughtful discourse. You, they didn't have time to think about it. And so if you don't give a student time to think about it, then you don't get a thoughtful answer. Definitely. Right? You get, yeah. Sometimes you just get a guess or something or, or just a quick response. Mm-hmm. So earlier you talked about that you even give your students the question and then let them go talk about it in a small group before mm-hmm. you bring it out mm-hmm. to the big group. And that just sounds like it makes so much sense. It just gives another level of thoughtfulness to what the ultimate, ultimate discourse is going to look like. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. Yeah, and it looks different hour to hour, day to day. Some classes you'll have, you know, the same couple kids, hand in the air. They looked at the slides early. They're ready to go. Other classes you need to kind of give them a little bit more prompting, a Mm -hmm. little push them a little bit more to answer questions. But I think for the most part, that's the standard practice in my room at least. And then one thing that I always hit home with is, Learning looks like changing your opinion. Everyone always wants to be right about something, be socially conscious, like is really tied to these ideals that we hold ourselves to. But what learning looks like is changing your opinion. And no one should have the same opinion all the time, forever and ever, in light of new information, in light of different points of view. And so I try to create space for that to happen in my room so that changes of opinion can happen together in front of each other, with each other. So then that kind of helped cultivate, again, that safe space where kids are open to sharing, open to hearing, and open to being wrong or being persuaded. Okay, so one thing that was prominent in your answer about what stuck out to you in this chapter on thoughtful discourse, and it's, it's, it's something that I don't think, when you initially think thoughtful discourse might come to mind right away, but it's the importance of questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so much of this chapter is about questions. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how you think about questions and asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. 
So I assume I'm almost always wrong or misunderstanding (laughs) someone. I think that's a safe place to be at. And so when it comes to my own questions, I guess if I'm posing them to a group or posing them to a kid, it's always like seeking to understand. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell, like I'm trying to think of an example. We'll go through and we'll annotate our essays looking for different examples of author's craft, for example. So sure. Tell me where you used purposeful diction. Tell me um, how you manipulated syntax to get the reader to slow down or speed up. And I'll tell them, if I read your essay, and I think that this is an example of one, but you can argue it's the other, we can both be right at the same time. Okay. And so knowing that depending on context and depending on intention, you know, the impact might be a little bit different for everyone in the room. And so if I am trying to follow a student with their answer, I'll just ask questions like, what do you mean by that? Can you say more about that? Mm -hmm. And then if I say something and it's confusing, maybe I know I like asked a question, totally just butchered it. Uh, Like I've, kids will say back to me, can you say more about that? And I'm like, yes, I can. Thank you you for the opportunity to do so. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So they're, they're, you're modeling it and it's catching on to your students. Definitely. Okay. So Kim, yes, I'd like to go back a little bit to something you said about um, the way you set up opportunities for, for discourse. And one of the things you said is sometimes you, you move all the desks away and you circle up and you mentioned that you give points for their discussions in the real world, not online or something like technology related. Yes. But do you, so do you physically, do you actually give points or what were you saying there? Yes. So this this could also relate to how I have grown as an as an educator. I wouldn't ten years ago I would not have thought participation points were a good way of assessing students because that is that's a free point. That's an easy point. That doesn't matter. That's not them knowing the answer. But what the student that is talking the most is a student that's learning the most. And we need to give our students more opportunity in the classroom that is a sacred space. It is real life. It is not automated to speak and to be confident in speaking and to get to know the person sitting next to you that you might not have spoken to. And I do now assign points for participating in a discussion because that is who should be speaking are the students, not me. Mm-hmm. I know all of this, or at least enough to get our lesson to the point that I need to be. And students learn the best by hearing their peers use language that they can understand and relate to. Mm-hmm. And that's the best to build confidence and to really engage in a discussion where we see that individual thinking and it's also translates great to our writing. Before you write about something, you need to talk about something. Mm-hmm. And that's where I see a lot of confidence come to students. And it's been a, a wonderful part of class that I enjoy the most, especially when students no longer need me to guide them in their questions, but are able to naturally go back and forth and then if if the beginning of the discussion starts with I'm just going to raise my hand to get the points it always evolves to a natural conversation between the students where I'm not needed anymore and they're able to take the reins and volley back and forth with each other different ideas that are relative to to what we want to discuss and what's meaningful in in class and that's been a, a wonderful 
thing to see. Okay, so Chandler, mm-hmm. I'm curious how your thinking on thoughtful discourse has changed over time or evolved as you've experienced more time in the classroom. Teaching has humbled me a lot, for sure. I think that when you're in college, you kind of feel like you need to be this person at the front of the room that has all the answers. And even just, I mean, there aren't even words to describe these last few years. Like, there are so many things I don't have answers to. Mm -hmm. And so allowing myself to sit up there, at whether it's at the front of the classroom or, like, with a small group of kids, I think maybe in, like, my first year of teaching, for example, I always... I didn't want to really let down the veil of, I have no idea what the answer is, or, oh, you're right, that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So now it's just, like, really fluid for me and organic to me to say, oh, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Or So, like, I'm not afraid to let the kids see when I'm in the wrong or I don't know something, and Mm -hmm. that's definitely happened from being in the classroom. And I think that when I was imagining what it would be like to be a teacher, or even my experiences with teachers, I didn't really, like, see a ton of that, I Mm -hmm. guess. And so now I think that that's one of my strong, like one of my biggest strengths in being a teacher is my kids feel safe answering my questions or letting me know when they're confused about something because I do that for them too. And it's just true. Where do you think the confidence comes from that you're now okay to not know something? Whereas when you were a newer teacher, that was harder. I think when I was a newer teacher, I thought that the kids wouldn't maybe trust or respect me as an educator if I didn't have an answer or if I didn't have a solution to a problem. Mm -hmm. But the more that I get to work with kids and to be a teacher, the adults in the building they trust are the adults that own up to it when they don't know something, Mm -hmm. own up to it when um, they answer something wrong or they don't know the answer to something. And so that vulnerability aspect, it's hard to go to a college TED course and learn how to be vulnerable and learn the impact of that it's much more something I think that you find within yourself the longer you're in a room the longer you work a job where you're working with so many other educators and you're working with an administration team and you're working on clubs and sponsors and with so many students and so it's just kind of something that you have to have your feet on the ground and you're in the field learning how to do it you can't like teach it in a classroom you can get it by teaching in a classroom Mm -hmm. but Yeah, it comes with experience, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting to think that there's power in you being vulnerable Mm -hmm. and not having all the answers. Yeah. And when you were talking earlier about your example of, um, I don't remember, voice or something, Mm -hmm. of a student finding in their writing an example of a certain voice and and how you could see it one way and they could see it another way, and so I feel like that's an, that's another area where we deal with a lot more gray mm-hmm. than people yes. maybe realize. Definitely. And oh so gosh. being okay with the gray areas. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is something that's puzzling me too. But you know what? That's because it's not clear cut. Yeah. And that's powerful too. Yeah. Yeah. And then they like... In those instances, it's so interesting to see what kids come up with because I'll be like, you're just so wrong. Like, (laughs) did you just do this a minute ago because I was walking over? And they're like, no, remember like a week ago when you showed that video and that guy said this? And I'm like, it's like a light bulb moment for me. I'm like, you're right. I am too. We're both right. Look at us go. Yeah. You know, so and that's like that's those are like the best parts of teaching those moments when we can both like have that aha moment together in a room and all. It's just super cool. 
And that comes from vulnerability from me and from them. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Chandler. Yeah. Chandler Brown, Kim McKinnon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. I had a wonderful time. Okay, that wraps up another episode of Thriving Educators. I'd like to thank Chandler Brown and Kim McKinnon for sharing their expertise with me. Take care, everyone.